I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he just got back from the annual meeting of the Losers Club. It's Andy Greenwald! It's actually a quarterly now. Oh, is the it? Meeting. Do yeah. you guys have dues there? Is that? <laughs> I think we pay <laughs> you get a due. benefits by being a loser. We pay our dues daily. That is a dope reference mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, the blockbuster horror film we sweeping talk. the nation. Shocked by this? Are you shocked? Well, we can get into that. A Andy, little bit. Uh, it's Monday. Uh, we just want to say, actually, at the top of the show, obviously, we talk a lot about fun stuff. We talk about like, peak TV. The peaks and valleys of TV and pop culture here, but our thoughts are definitely with those affected by Hurricane Irma this weekend. It was terrible. Yes. Watched a lot of coverage this weekend and uh, hoping everybody stays safe down there and that the recovery is swift. Keep Houston in your thoughts and prayers. Keep Florida in your thoughts and prayers. Absolutely. Moving into the pop culture stuff. The biggest story coming out of this weekend yeah. was definitely the fact that this horror movie about a clown Oof. made almost $80 million. Who is the ready for some takes from a guy who didn't see the movie? Biggest? Oh, I saw it. I know. I meant for me. I'm, I, I love having a discussion with you when you're like, I haven't seen it. But we can do it anyway, because I, I want to get your takes on a couple of things here. Yeah, I've got thoughts. Um, it made $80 million almost this weekend domestically. And it is like straight hard. It's like a hard R horror movie. Like it is a like a, a kid gets his arm bitten off in the first 10 minutes. It's wow. for real. And I think that if th- this has had such a fascinating development process that we can break this down in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting to me. Typically what happens when a movie like it that had such a tumultuous kind of development process, when you get it to the theater, it tends to generally perform according to how rough or smooth it took to get it there and often does this has been obviously a huge success despite the fact that Carrie Fukunaga had been uh, attached to the project for many years wrote a script has a screenplay credit Mm. Andy Machete came in uh, and replaced him after Fukunaga walked away from the project it had been like not unlike Dark Tower, also been debated about, like, are we going to do this as, like, a movie and then a series, or a series and then a movie? Is there going to be, well, how many components to this is there going to be? Um, at the end of the day, they decided to make, they broke it up, whereas It the Book, I think, is covers, obviously, quite a long it's period of time. thousand-page book, Yeah, I it is, it's a classic Stephen King, uh, 80s. Brick. <laughs> Ellis from Die Hard type <laughs> writing experience. For like. real. Um, nice this one is just the kids. Uh, they updated the story so that it's set in 1988. So when they jump ahead 27 years later in the sequel, which is all within the book, oh, it will be more contemporary. This is just the first part? It is just the first part. It's wow. just the kids. Just the kids. It's the It expanded universe. Yeah, but you know what? The uh, the It IP, if you will. Yeah, but I would say for as much as it's just about the kids, mm. this is a movie for adults. Oh. Because it's pretty violent. And uh, I think, you know, when I was going into it, there had been some people who had been saying, like, oh, this harkens back to, like, early 80s pop horror, mm-hmm. Spielberg, Toe Hooper, like, Poltergeist, a little bit of Jaws in there, like, that kind of Fright feeling. Night? Or is that too funny? Uh, Friday Night's a little bit too comical. There's would, some funny bits in this movie. Friday Night's about as deep as I went. In the yeah. 80s. I will say this. Here's my review. I'm ready. Uh, it was too scary. And I don't mean that because wow. I was scared. I just mean that the success of horror movies for me are mm. a lot... A lot of it has to do with what's happening in between the jump thrills. You know, in, in between the scares. And... <laughs> That's what people say about pornography. <laughs> Just a classic thing to say. I'm there for the story. I'm there yeah. for the articles. Is that pizza going to get delivered? <laughs> I want to know. It's getting cold. 
So this movie starts out and doesn't stop with just like scene after scene after scene of don't go down there. Oh yeah. my God, don't go down there. Yeah. Oh my God, that clown's in the sewer. Uh, which is another kind of pornography. <laughs> I don't know. I can send you a link later. Yeah. Um. Dark web. <laughs> so dark. I think that horror is successful because of what happens in between the scares. And it actually suffocates itself with too many scares. There's actually not that much suffocation in it, for what it's worth. But okay, <laughs> but there's just a lot of scene after scene after scene of some terrible thing happening and not even always with the clown like there's like these town bullies they're they're harassing these kids and stuff like that but at the end of the day it's like yeah just like this movie is really good i i always remember i i I personally don't think it's as great as it as its box office number would suggest it might Mm -hmm. be but it is a very well-made movie that does manage to sustain interest over the course of two hours and 15 minutes, I think. So I, I'm i kind of coming out mixed on it. I, I personally, as a horror fan, was a little mm-hmm. bit mixed on it. I think as a movie fan, I understand its success. Yeah, well, I think the, the best takeaway from from successes like this are often the, the second takeaway you mentioned. It's not, this is a triumph of cinema, and we should ape every artistic choice made in it, but rather, this was well done. Yeah. And let's try and make things that are well done in the future. And that's the lesson that never gets learned. Yeah, I think it's it, notable that this, they did not try to PG-13 this. Yes. And it, they just have, like, the kids curse all the time. The the blood is, like, very, it's a very graphic film. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it was just kind of like, I was trying to remember, when you were a kid, because yeah. the funny thing about these kids all being like 11 or 12 or yeah. whatever in 88 is like, that's what we were. Yeah. My Did God. you ride bikes a lot? Did you like ride bikes with kids around the neighborhood a lot? Uh, I rode bikes a lot. Yeah. Maybe with like one or two kids. Yeah. I didn't really have a gang. <laughs> um, but I definitely did ride bikes okay. around the neighborhood. That was a thing to do. Were there parts do. of town that you weren't allowed to go to on your bike? Um, I was the sort of kid who wouldn't have pushed and tried to find out. Oh, really? No, but like there were a secret plate. I think it was, that is a very potent idea, at least still for our generation. Yeah. The idea, I remember there were like places that you could only get to by bike. There was like an alleyway behind the drugstore and the pizza place that you could go in the back door mm-hmm. and like get a slice or a vanilla Coke or whatever. Like that, that was the topography. Yeah. They had vanilla Coke? They had a soda fountain in the pharmacy. This is, I grew up in 1950, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Fun story. I'm immortal. Um, there was a pharmacy, and they still had a soda fountain, and they would make. They would take a. Didn't soda you grow up like 20 minutes from me? Yeah, dude. This was this was. Uh, um, what's the name of the pharmacy? Um, it was on uh, Haverford Avenue in Manoa, and they had like a soda fountain there. Yeah. Wow. It was small. Damn. Boy, it tasted real good. Yeah. Real sweet. Anyway, but these are the sort of things you could. You know, freedom was not unlimited, but the small amount of freedom you got when you got wheels, such as you did, was a very powerful thing, and that's. You know, that is part of the appeal of Stranger Things, of it, of, I would imagine, having not seen it. And well, they do a good job of, uh, of, ex- of showing haunted spaces. Yeah. Like, um, I remember when I was a kid, we used to play stickball, like, off Lombard oh, Street somewhere. you grew somewhere. up in the 50s, too. Yeah, no, we, oh. we would play, like, it wasn't stickball, like, with a stick. It was basically, like, yeah. uh, we used the yellow wiffle ball bat, but we would stuff it with newspaper to make it, like, heavier and have more impact. <laughs> that sounds like prison rules. And then we played with either, um, you know, those pink squares? the pink rubber balls uh-huh. or a tennis ball. Mm-hmm. And, but you know, every once in a while we would hit the ball into this underground parking lot that was there. And yeah. I, the rumor was that there was guarded by a Rottweiler. I don't think I've ever, I ever saw it, but there was just yeah. like a lot of like, you know, you'd run down into this dark place. And like, if you didn't go, you know, you were, you were ridiculed. Well, honestly, but I think that that's speaking to something that Stephen King always understood, which is the, the richest parts of your imagination are formed in childhood. And, that is a 
you know, I, I, tell me if I'm wrong. A lot of this is coming from my opinion about horror films, a genre I do not engage with. Yeah. But if you look at movies like uh, Friday the 13th and Scream, there are all these essays written about or people making the, the connections that, you know, it's the, the fear of teenage sexuality and it's about becoming a grown up in a scary world. That's those are very interesting themes and clearly have produced a lot of movies that people have liked or right. been scared of. Right. But I don't know if that is as innate to all of us as don't ride your bike down there. I think that they're Cameron about this when he was he wrote his review on the ringer last week and he was talking more about the book, but about, you know, how it reflected the time in which it was written is even mm-hmm. though this book was set in the 50s, it had a lot of stuff in there about 80s era, Reagan era, oh, yeah. and like AIDS fear and a lot of stuff. And I think that uh, horror movies have a tendency. I don't I don't always buy like that Nightmare on Elm Street is about teenage the the sort of terror of teenage sexuality as much as or Friday the 13th is um, as much as it has. In it, you take it out of the vacuum and it's like that was a movie that was made in a particular time mm-hmm. in history and why was that movie mm-hmm. exciting for people you know mm-hmm. and I always and I think the farther away you get from some of these horror movies the more interesting it is to watch something like Friday the 13th because you think about like this was a pre-information age time of like when fear could grow out of lack of information or urban legends yeah exactly like exactly um, you could tell people like like there was a in philly i remember there was this whole thing about like um remember taney park sure there was like the taney gang yeah did you ever hear about that yeah my mom worked uh, near there right your mom worked near there like i'm sure your mom was not like really watching out for the taney gang because like apparently one kid got his bike stolen yeah. and it lasted for like eight years it's like don't go to taney park don't go in taney park it's taney park nice, was nice it's a really nice park yeah it was pretty cool actually still is yeah but maybe I just, the people who hung but out that there stuff just like invented it to yeah. keep you away and i actually the only time i ever got jumped in philly were like three blocks from my house really yeah you got jumped yeah you know like jumped like give me your baseball cleats maybe they didn't like the way you stuffed your bat <laughs> um let me say a couple things here I want to just say a few words in favor of the miniseries Hive. Sure. The, the only Pennywise we recognize. Did you did is, you see that? Is Tim Curry. Yeah, I did. I watched that on ABC television in 1990. Um, well, I have to say, yeah. I, I would have put some more checks on what you could and couldn't watch in the early, late 80s and early 90s. I had unfettered access to the American Broadcasting Company in 1990. Did you watch Miami Vice? Twin Peaks. It Miami Vice, I saw a couple times when like there was a sleepover and like you kept the TV on late. Yeah. That was past my bedtime yeah. when that was on in the late 80s. That was like a 10 p.m. show. Mm-hmm. But it, I mean, think about the cast. I mean, we talk about prestige TV, peak TV. It miniseries had Harry Anderson still trailing flames like an NBA jam player from night court. Okay. It had young Seth Green. That's actually Green. just his magic tricks that he would do. <laughs> yeah. It had young Seth Green. Yeah. It had John Ritter. Who Ritter, I believe, that's right. Who I believe weeps at one point yeah. due to the terror of this clown. Yeah. Anyway, I just remember it being okay. Look, I'm not actually rep- repping for that. I, I think um, what's fascinating to me about this before we move on, twofold. You mentioned it in terms of a not tortured, but a long development process. The reason why that's a red flag to me, or could be, or should be a red flag, is the reason why um, The Dark Tower was made. The reason why it was made is because we are still in the dregs of the great IP scramble of the 20-teens, mm-hmm. meaning the movies became one thing when Marvel exploded, which was, we need to be blockbuster, we need to be franchise, we need to have these linked universes, we need to take advantage of pre-existing intellectual property. And so the King verse has, despite sitting there forever, um, was ripe for the picking. So all of those projects immediately were plunged back into development. You got the sense of the Dark Tower, which completely flamed out this year 
um, much like Harry Anderson <laughs> after Night Court, um, that they were going to make that movie regardless. It yeah. really didn't matter what the movie was. They were so dead set on making a movie with the name The Dark Tower that this weird thing that was released stillborn in the theaters is almost irrelevant. Yeah, right. right. To the, what's interesting to me about it was that whoever stayed on top of this, whether it was the producers or whether it was Fukunaga's chemtrails that he left behind the project, whatever, or this, the new guy, Andy Muschietti, they stayed true to it. They, they had a vision for this movie, good or bad, and apparently it was good. Okay, so that said, the second thing that's amazing to me is how wildly successful it was and how suddenly it seemed to be inevitable that it would be successful. Going yes. from being trouble to... Now, there are a couple things that we know. When horror movies have good word of mouth, they tend to do well. There, there are, there's two reasons to go to the... Like, at the end of the day, there are two real reasons to go to the movie theater. Spectacles like Dunkirk mm-hmm. or scary movies like this. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you can see anything there. It's great to see the big sick on a big screen with sure. a bunch of people. But the... There's something about being in a theater full of people as that tension mounts in a horror thing that is pretty addictive. Yeah. Like, you can feel it. Still, this level of success, I think it's the highest grossing R-rated film opening weekend since Deadpool. And and it would have been, I think it's now the number two or something yeah. like that. That's really surprising to me. And I wonder, and maybe we can talk to Sean Fennessy about this because he's, he's, he's tracking this. He's the major domo of box office mojo these days. But... <laughs> But like there was some talk this year that Rotten Tomatoes suddenly had an um, undue effect, yeah, outsized effect, outsized effect. And so, is the reverse true now? Is that the the buzz was so positive and people are so just really want things that are good, just baseline good, that that carried us over the finish line? The Rotten Tomatoes thing, I think, is it's convenient because it's uh, they've given it a statistic, Mm -hmm. they've given it a a number that you can just be like, this is. I have an idea in my head about where I want this to be, and if it's below or above it, Mm -hmm. I'll see it or not see it but my dad used to be a movie critic and like mm-hmm. his reviews on on fridays were like he would get phone calls from just regular readers being yeah. like i disagreed or i i went to this movie because you told me to and it was bad or i didn't see this movie because you said it was or i did see this movie but you said it was bad but you were wrong mm-hmm. like this is just this is just a new way of telling people whether or not they should do something and they're going to get upset or not about it now studios are upset because they think well there are a lot of people here who may not have read through a 500 word review or just right. would have taken our word for it that they should go see Hudson Hawk or something 30 years ago. But I mean, <laughs> did your dad say that? No, no. My dad was pretty bad about like genre movies though. Four stars for remains of the day though. I remember that well. <laughs> All day, every was day, a great man. Review. Great film, too. Merchant Ivory. Is just, Merchant Ivory. <laughs> it's how my house got built. <laughs> Before you pivot, I have one question. Do you want to put a bow on the ITIP? Stephen King, so hot right now. Yeah. Um, Castle Rock coming on Hulu. It's like the Stephen King verse show. Anthology show starring, I would say, Friend of the Potty came on once. Nice guy. Terrific. One of the best actors working, Andre Holland. Very excited yeah. about that. I just was curious, is there any piece of ephemera in the King IP universe that you are still hungering to see adapted? Yeah, you know, I that's a really great question. I, I know we were talking about that the other day, and it was like, oh, I can't believe they've ever made like Tommy Knockers. And there's a lot of good uh, short stories that he's done. And, mm-hmm. and Sean actually was telling me, like, he was like, you know, when you think about it, like a lot of his short stories are the basis for the best thing, the best movies that have been made. Like of, Shawshank? Yeah. Uh, and or Stand By Stand Me, by The me, Body, yeah. yeah. I, do you have one? Did you read a no, lot of and K? by the way, we didn't, We've never. I haven't watched Mr. Mercedes. Have you? I've not watched Mr. Mercedes. No, um, I don't have Directv. <laughs> I I do, uh, but I still haven't watched it. I should. I like I like Brendan Gleeson. It's just to me that's just a weird thing that there is a Stephen King show starring Brendan Gleeson that just exists. So I'm I, I'm very excited for Castle Rock. To be Castle honest, Castle Rock. I'm excited about. 
I, I guess the thing that's interesting to me about it is one of the uh, one of the reasons the short stories have succeeded is because they are they are very compact and limited, and then give a lot of opportunity for adaptation and for um, you know the creative voice of the filmmaker to come in mm-hmm. and steer it through. For a long time, I think what hampered Stephen King's uh, stuff from being adapted was that it had the perfect medium already. He is a very specific storyteller. He is a very uh, verbose storyteller. His books are very, very long. Yeah. And he has a very specific voice. And when we were in a world where TV shows were network TV shows and movies were two hours long, they didn't really fit into those boxes very well. So the thing that you were talking about, how is the Dark Tower going to be broken up into different medium? Is it going to be a movie franchise? As daunting as that can be, that does suggest ways to adapt things more creatively. I'm st- I still love The Stand. I love the book. Yeah. I love the experience of reading the book. The only thing that I will say, though, why I am pessimistic about its chances to be adapted is The Stand, in many ways, is the DNA of every major um, dystopian storytelling that we... I mean, it, there's threads of it in The Walking Dead. Um, certainly a huge influence on The Passage, the Justin Cronin book series that we were big fans yeah. of that's being adapted to a miniseries on Fox. So, Is it going to be a miniseries or just a straight series? Miniseries. Okay. Um, but... I think multiple, multi, gosh, talk about something that's gone through multi-year miniseries yeah. and not just that it was greenlit. They filmed it and now they're re- redoing it. Oh, wow. It's been problematic I as see. they say. Um, so it's weird. It's almost as if the moment is at the moment when it is most suited for some of his most beloved work, it's been just, just sublimated into the culture to a degree that we might not need it. Um, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back to talk a little bit about top of the lake, the deuce, and also some shifts going on. At Are Amazon. you calling top of the lake to top of the lake, the deuce? Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by SeatGeek. Andy, buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There is nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it is by far the easiest way I find to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just use SeatGeek to buy tickets for the Dodgers, Mm. but I'm kind of wondering whether or not I, like, the Dodgers suck now. Yeah. So maybe I should have bought Angels tickets. Are they good? No. Maybe I should buy plane tickets and fly to Cleveland and get Seeky to get me Indians tickets. You know what I'm going to use it for? What? I'm going to check out tickets for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers at the Hollywood Bowl. Ooh. I'm going to see what I can do on there. That's interesting. Seeky saves you time and money whether you're seeing Tom Petty or the terrible Dodgers. Your ticket buying experience is never going to be easier. And to get you the most bang for your buck, Seeky grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, watch listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate, download the SeatGeek app, go to settings, and click add a promo code and enter promo code WATCH. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made the first ticket purchase. Download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WATCH today. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you're like me... 
and you're not so great at planning ahead, I've got good news for you. There's this awesome app called Hotel Tonight that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. It sounds counterintuitive, but unlike flights, hotel rates usually get cheaper at the last minute. And Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. These are not last resort places, Greenwald. They are actually cool, top-rated hotels that you want to stay in. And with so many awesome partner hotels in a ton of different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or finally going on that trip you've been wanting to take for a while. One could say it's been the summer of Hotel Tonight for me, Andy. I would say it. I've used Hotel Tonight multiple times for my little vacations, mini vacations, because my real vacation is coming up. That sounds so But all my little trips I've taken this summer, I've used Hotel Tonight. Even though the app is called Hotel Tonight, you can book up to a week in advance. All it takes, 10 seconds, three taps and a swipe. Get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. Andy, Sunday Night TV is back. Uh, I know you you know you wanted to address Insecure. We'll get to that down the line. Um, that wrapped up its second season this mm-hmm. week. Uh, and then two new shows came out. One is The Deuce, which we've talked about kind of extensively. We had George Pelicanos on a couple of weeks ago. He's one of the co-creators of the show with David Simon. And that was this pilot episode that aired on Sunday had been available mm-hmm. on HBO Go for a little while. And then uh, Top of the Lake, China Girl is on Sundance, another show. I Top of the Lake, colon, China Girl. I like t- hashtag T-O-T-L. How's that? T-O-T-L, two. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to talk about this under the umbrella of an article that came yeah. out, I think on Friday, yeah. in Variety, which is about a philosophical shift um, at Amazon. And yes. Amazon is... Not, we don't talk as much about Amazon shows as we do about Netflix shows, mm-hmm. I don't think. Uh, and maybe Jeff Bezos has noticed that. He's I don't a, think that we're the barometer for this. He's a big fan of the watch. But I would say that Amazon had trans, 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 Transparent mm-hmm. and it has Catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And both are very lovely Man, shows. Man in the High Castle, Bosch. And Man in the Has- High Castle and Bosch. I think those are the two sort of big ones. Goliath, a couple other, you know, like... But they do their... They're odd, like, here's all the pilots. You guys let mm-hmm. us know what you want us to make. But in reality, probably they're like, they we, know. we know what we're making. Mm-hmm. Friday on the 8th, uh, a, a piece went up on Variety about a uh, new mandate coming mm-hmm. from Seattle, from Jeff Bezos, that's basically like, find me Game of Thrones. Yep. That they want to have a conversation starting high-end drama that makes a global impact. Yes. And... Sort of along those lines, they have gotten rid of some shows. They got rid of Z, the beginning of everything, which was the Christina Ricci, Zelda Fitzgerald show that yes. had finished its first season. And that had been after the head of Amazon TV, Roy Price, had said, yeah, we're going forward, second season. And then it was like, wait, no. We're this not. happened with Good Girls Revolt, too, it uh, did. a few months ago. Yeah. And I think they did this to the, was the last tycoon in Amazon show? Yeah. So can I, can I Fitzgerald, the Fitzgerald verse is dead. Yeah. The dream is dead. <laughs> if you want to know why this happened, Let's just run the tape back and realize that they had just aired two F. Scott Fitzgerald dramas. Yeah. What were they doing? I don't know. I don't know. What were they thinking? Now, there are a couple couple ways into this story. This is this is a hundred percent. This is true. Yeah. This is not just Variety reported. This is something that I I found out from meetings over there that this was there was a subtle shift. And then that suddenly became a very forceful shift. So would you describe that shift? So I think there's like a way to look at the story and just be like, this is a nothing burger. Because like, no, the idea of it, big shows that can make the biggest difference around the world is like, sure. Yes. yes. Like, I think everybody would like those. But here's the difference. Yeah. Amazon has unlimited money. Yes. And it is, if you think about it, it's actually incredibly strange that the, one of the biggest companies in the world 
entered into a space as competitive as original television and did it with the highbrow reserve of Merchant Ivory, to mm -hmm. call them back. Yeah. Uh, they entered into television like an art house programmer. Yeah. Now, there's obviously very good things that can come from that. They made some very, very smart um, international co-branding deals, Catastrophe, Fleabag, among them. They greenlit Transparent, which had been in contention at HBO, which immediately um, put them on on a sort of cultural map, if not a national consciousness. It won them awards, it got them nominated, it got people interested in working with them. Um, it was, in Which terms can't of, be under, no, underplayed. Exactly. That's because, what I want to say. And like, that's why you get to the point now where uh, Matt Weiner is coming to them. Matt, they got Matt Weiner. They have this David O. Russell show with Robert De Niro and Julianne Moore coming. Yeah. Um, they got Woody Allen to make a TV show, regardless of what you think of it. I mean, they were... They, their film division, which is not exactly what we're talking about, hired Ted Hope, who used to run Good Machine, and you know they they put out Manchester by the Sea. There's a imprimatur of quality on the stuff that they're doing that is worthwhile mm -hmm. and valuable to the world. But if you think about it, it's overall incredibly strange that not just were they um, uh, investing in smaller ceiling to pieces, which is a generous way of saying things that are never going to be nationally or internationally blockbusters. Yeah. It's that they continue to do it in a way that seemed like a strategy, which leads them to greenlighting not one, but two F. Scott Fitzgerald sure. projects. The ceilings of either are relatively low. So it makes sense that they want to play with the Yeah. And I, I think mean, that it's, it's worth saying in the context of what's happening in the larger industry that I, and I don't have any inside information about this, but I would imagine that if I worked at Amazon and my job is to make decisions about stuff like this, I would hear the footsteps of Facebook and Apple coming. The, the, the Apple one because is Because for a while, Amazon and Netflix seem to have a checkbook, an yep. unrivaled checkbook. Mm -hmm. And when Facebook announces that they're going to spend a billion dollars on original content and Apple has been making more and more noises about how they're getting into the content and, game. And, and think about the way Apple is getting into it. It's by hiring the heads of Sony TV, yeah. the heads of one of the largest independent studios who know how to make hit shows, mm -hmm. who made um, everything from Breaking Bad to Community, they are now in charge of TV for Apple. That is not just hanging a shingle saying open for business, that's throwing open the doors right. in a very major way. Right. And we're it, actually, I mean, and, and I'm sure that the folks over now, a lot of what's interesting about this variety thing is the... A lot of it is about the data that they've been pulling, mm -hmm. that Amazon has been, and they've kind of run this multi-year experiment of putting out these shows, and they kind of let, I think, the creative executives do their thing mm -hmm. for a few years, and now they're like, look, we're a data-driven company. We have access to incredible amount mm -hmm. of troves of numbers about what people are watching, when they're watching, what they want to be watching more of, and the this the, there's like, we're going to make a change creatively in what we're doing. Now, what I think is interesting about this is how digital companies like Amazon and Netflix maybe have a leg up on some places that are like, you know, like, let's just do this or let's just like, they're a little bit more intuitive. Now, I'm sure that there's a lot of data that goes into the decisions that somebody like ABC makes, you know? Yeah. But it's, it is fascinating to me that when you work for a company that may not be like, you know, a studio exec at, at the head, it's a guy who's like, I sell vacuum cleaners and books and groceries and television. But, but let's think about two things. There is a, there is a things, things you can often ascribe uh, behavior in companies to physical location. Amazon is in Seattle. Their TV business is in Santa Monica. Uh, 
that that's a divide, and it's a cultural divide as well. And you know there has to be some friction between each city, the, the data-driven city being like, we know how to run this business, and the people they hired from the larger TV and film world being, we know this business. Yeah. A couple of years of figuring that out has led to where we are now. And I think it's worth noting, to your point, the one advantage that Amazon, not one, they have many advantages, but one particular advantage that might be overlooked in this is actually ties into our Stephen King conversation, which is we live in a IP obsessed universe. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody wants the next adaptation. Game of Thrones itself was adapted from books. Amazon can have a um, vertical chain, basically. They can sell you the book. And then they can sell you the TV yes. show. Here's another thing they can do. They probably don't admit this in a public way, but everybody knows it's possible. They can put their thumb on the scale and make a book a bestseller. Sure. They can just put it in front of more eyeballs. Yeah. They can sync it. And it doesn't even have to be nefarious. They have the data to say, well, if you bought Charmin, you might also like the work of George R. R. Martin, and we're going to put it in the corner of your eye, and maybe you'll buy it. They can link things on a casual way. And an advertising way, Mm -hmm. honestly, a native advertising way that a lot of these other services can't. So to not harness that is kind of foolish. Look, I feel like we can use our own experience of this. Like we do this podcast twice a week. And I think that for a large part of maybe the last 10 to 12 months, we've definitely felt that there just isn't a there isn't like a coalescing around a show, any other shows besides Thrones. People really like other shows, Mm -hmm. but there hasn't been that feeling like, say what you will creatively about Game of Thrones this season. And I think it was, you know, not as successful as past seasons creatively, but still had a lot to like, Mm -hmm. a lot to love. It definitely felt like, I so like clear out, get out of the paint for this show for seven weeks, for seven weeks. And you could see across the internet, this sort of just this surge of, of, Mm -hmm. of content about the show. And I think that if you're someone who pays a lot of money for original content, you're like, I want the return. That's the return I want on my investment. I don't always, I mean, yes, the golden globes and the Emmys are great, but what I want is for kids to be walking around in the streets wearing winter is coming t-shirts yeah. over the shirt oh, and I want to sell them that shirt I and I and and that is ultimately the the kind of game and this is how Hollywood arrived at we're going to keep making Transformers movies mm-hmm. because these are the things that matter on a global level even if nobody likes them and yes, I think they, and they, they let that one get away from them but this is how you start making like what is the most popular thing and can we make a lot of stuff about it. Amazon and Netflix are publicly traded companies. And one thing to remember about publicly traded companies is that growth is what matters most to investors. Um, in many ways, they have a similar business model, which is let's not, they don't worry. And this is how Amazon has been the darling of Wall Street for decades, despite yeah. never, it's sort of unclear whether it's ever even turned a profit, is because it's constantly growing. It's constantly growing its business in 100 new fields at any given moment. And that is attractive to people. Netflix operates under a similar mandate. And the biggest growth often, this is the case in in Hollywood in general, but certainly for these companies, is global. So the shows they are making need to be global. Um, Amazon is making two seasons. They've committed to making two seasons of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel from Amy Sherman Palladino. That's one of my favorite pilots of the last few years. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I raved about it on this podcast. I can't wait to watch the show. I don't know the traction that that's going to get in Asia. I I, I mean, that's not that kind of show. I am okay and enthused by the idea of them betting on the monoculture as you're saying making a show that everybody loves and there was a lot of there were a lot of jokes um when this news broke on friday from from tv critic twitter being like make the next game of thrones oh is that all yeah right sure everyone has that mandate but you know amazon has the wherewithal and certainly the money to try i don't 
and I think they have the smarts to not just make that actually what they're doing. They're not just going to throw money at people with swords. They hired an, a very smart executive from Bad Robot to lead up a division in charge of this. And, you know, I, I won't name names, but I will say that in meetings I've had with studios and networks, only, only this, this the following quote was only given to me at one place. Money's not really an issue over here. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you figure out which company that was. Of the stuff that has been bandied about as some of the new Amazon shows and ones that sort of follow this this new mandate, the one I thought I would mention is uh, Tong Wars, mm-hmm. which is a show coming from uh, Paul Atanasio, who wrote one of our favorite shows of all time, uh, Homicide. He, he was one of the original mm-hmm. writers on that show. And has done a lot of like kind of fair to middling television since then, but also wrote The Good German, which was a not particularly well-received Steven Soderbergh mm-hmm. movie. He is doing Tong Wars with uh, Wong Kar Wai. Yeah. So, holy shit. Uh, there's some Seth Rogen stuff in here. You know, it's like, they're going to look around. They're going to look around genres, and they're going to try and find something that's big. The reason why I use all of this as a way to talk about these two shows, into, both of yeah. which we're quite fond of, um, and I think we can talk a little bit more about Top of the Lake, is that I do kind of wonder whether uh, they are the last of their kind. Not mm-hmm. not to be defeatist about it, people will make uh, a time and a place shows, mm-hmm. I'm sure, for years to come, and they will never get tired of dead girl shows. Mm-hmm. But there is something very... It's just there. It's something really invigorating to watch Jane Campion and David Simon and George Pelicanos present their specific visions of these stories and be allowed to take their time. And you know, if Jane Campion wants to make a, you know, really eccentric show that talks about like surrogacy and feminism, it, 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 it's a and, show about motherhood. Yeah, and 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 all this stuff in Australia. And then David Simon. There is no porn in the first episode of of yeah. of the, that's what the show is about. Th- that's the logline. Yeah, yeah, right. And there is no crime, like so to speak, of the like we have to solve this crime in in the deuce. And these are kind of shows that are going at their own pace in their own direction with their own where they're not thinking about like are you going to get a deuce t shirt? Are you going to get a China girl t shirt? It's and that's fine. Like not every show has to do that. But when you see these companies that were like we're all about like getting these creatives to trust us and work with us. And then you hear something like, well, maybe we want to get some dragons up involved in this thing. You wonder whether or not shows like this will have as much of a leash going forward. People are making more TV than ever before, and that hasn't changed. But it is worth tracking who's making it and what they're making. Uh, Is the ladder getting pulled up to a certain degree? People like Matt Weiner, you mentioned, is making an anthology show called The Romanoffs, where the theoret- what I've heard, the only thread between the various short stories, if you will, that are going to be told are that, is that one character believes that they are heirs to the lost empire of Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not porn either. You know what I mean? Like, that yeah, is right. not a, a poster selling, uh, a movie selling line you can put on a poster. Um, David Simon and Pelicanos have a sinecure at HBO where they can do their thing. And it's a beautiful thing. And in this, I, when we've talked about it, and we will continue to talk about it through the season, in many ways, the Deuce is their most commercial project to date. It is the most, quote unquote, fun, even though there's a lot of difficult yeah, for subject sure. matter. And, That's a good and point. That said, though, they have, been, they, they have earned the right to make this show. Vince Gilligan can make any show he wants to make. Jane Campion, being an award-winning filmmaker, can pull together the international financing to make this in the same way that um, a young pope can exist due to these arcane And Jane Campion is no dummy. I mean, this, the, the thrust of these shows is essentially like, what happened to this person? It's a Jane Campion crime show. Yeah. The question is the next generation of filmmakers. I mean, you mentioned people who just missed it. Paul Atanasio, who has a remarkable CV. Um, 
you know, is making a genre piece for Amazon that's in their blockbuster department. Now it's with Wong Kar Wai. This is not a hardship in any way. Yeah, right. But is it, are, are we starting to see in TV a similar case where unless you are... Um, Damien Chazelle, who just got a Netflix musical series. It, unless yeah. you are a certain level of filmmaker who already pr- proved your bones yeah. uh, or had this incredible, you know, a, a fluke success or whatever, do you have to marry your talent to someone else's IP or to someone else's, some other network's vision in order to monetize your creativity? It has that era passed where anything can get greenlit from anyone and take wild chances? Yeah. I, I, I think those are two separate questions now that I've said them out loud. No, Almost anything can get greenlit anywhere, yeah. it, clearly. Yeah. But um, in terms of people being able to tell a story at their own pace in their own inimitable style, I mean, you know, we, that, that was the thing that we said to Pelicanos, and I hope people go back and listen to our interview with him from the other week, that the thrill for us, I think, watching the pilot of The Deuce that most people got the chance to see last night or you can watch on demand, was that it didn't begin with a series-defining question. Who killed her? How is this guy going to get out of this predicament? Right. Or a, How know, does porn start? A yeah. flash forward and then a flash back. You know, well, porn it was starts just, with a delivery guy. We all know that. We all know that. <laughs> we, but porn starts with a very suspicious pizza order at a very strange time of night. Um, but... <laughs> But but right, the thing about the deuce that was so exhilarating was here is a completely realized world. Here are some people mm-hmm. who live in it. Okay, let's shake it up and see what happens when they all start bumping into each other. And for me, that is still a really exciting way into TV. And what's shocking to be saying this about a David Simon and George Pelicano show is that that feels old-fashioned. It feels like, in a way, a setup that we would have been saying 20 years ago about a you know, uh, NYPD Blue. Well, here are some characters who work in this police department. Yeah. What's going to happen to them? Well, and if there had been, if, if this was like a, if, if the deuce was made in the 90s, if they ever would have been able to make something like this, they would have done it in sort of like, I think that the, I think the stars of the show would probably be cops. You know, I think that the, right. there would be two cops who work vice in Times Square and there's maybe like a murder that they have to solve while all this stuff is happening it, on the margins. One of the best things about this show is that they've chosen so smartly. The star of the show is the location is Times Square. Yes. And here are Jason the people, wrote a really good piece about that last night. Yeah. About, yeah. About Times Square in New York. Here are the people who are drawn here who in otherwise other would never come across each other. People of all walks of life, all classes, all races, all backgrounds who are united in the pursuit of something, something bigger than themselves, whether it's money or fame or survival. And there they are in, yeah. this, in this powder keg. And, and in a typical Simon fashion, no good guys, no bad guys, in typical Pelicanos fashion, there's a little tiny bit of flash to it. There's a little bit of genre yeah, there's, there's to it yeah. and swag to it, and, uh, which is a good time to remind people, we're telling you to read his book, read The Sweet Forever. Sweet Forever, yeah. I, side note about this. Um, I'm reading our old Grandland pal, Jonathan Abrams, oh, yeah. Oral History of the Wire, All the Pieces Matter. Yeah. It's coming out at the beginning of next year. I'm reading it. I read it. It's terrific. There's so many we'll good have stories. We'll Abrams on to talk about it. We will. So many good stories about the making of The Wire. One side note, the reason Pelicanos went to work on The Wire, I believe in season two, is because uh, David Simon's wife, the crime novelist Laura Lippman, mm-hmm. forced him to read a Pelicanos book, uh, and she, the one she got him to read. I mean, they crossed paths at a funeral and got along, but they... The one that he Classic. read. The one that's, you know, my parents met at a funeral. No. For real. For sure. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Really? My parents met on a blind date. That's better. Better story. <laughs> my parents met when my mom ordered pizza, actually. Did you know that? <laughs> um, the book that David Simon read that sold him on Pelicano's writing for The Wire was The Sweet Forever, the book that you guys should be reading for the Double Down book. So we're basically responsible for The Wire. 
that's kind of was yeah. what I was getting to. Uh, my big thing for both of these shows, I don't know, do you want to talk about China Girl? And, and, and I mean, the first two episodes came out last night. The next two are tonight, Monday, and then the final two are on Tuesday. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I completely, when I spoke to <clears throat> Lizzie Moss last Lizzie! week about, I completely was wrong about how the show is being uh, released. released to us. <laughs> yes. I got the day wrong. I didn't understand they were doing it like a miniseries like yeah. this. Get on board with the show. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it's I love Top of the Lake, one and two. They are completely perplexing, challenging, confounding shows that don't operate under the rules that you're expecting if you think this is going to be a crime show or an international crime show. The yeah, way I mean, you've the come thing to is for them. both for both this and the Deuce, but for China Girl, I mean, and for both of the Top of the Lake series, I watched the first two um, over the weekend. It's just like it's it's such a good detective show. It, it is, is right? such a good detective show, and like I, and these are just my favorite kinds of shows. I'm unabashedly excited for True Detective season three in the Ozarks, even though there is already a show in the yeah. Ozarks. I am it, there is something about the the genre that allows for so many different tellings and so many different shades it, to go into it. And let's remember if, if there's been criticism I've seen of of Top of the Lake China Girl, and I've not finished it, and I've heard that it gets. Confound even more confounding mm-hmm. as it as it goes on. The main criticisms I've read are are the you know how unlikely that there would be this overlap between the professional and personal life of of Robin Griffin, Elizabeth Moss's character. Um, how it's not a proper investigation because they didn't you know tick these boxes or whatever. It's like you're doing crime fiction wrong. If yeah. you're watching yeah. it for that, watch a documentary or go do a ride along with. This your is local why you and I department. were not very big fans of the killing, is because it yes. actually was like both were wrong like yeah. first the investigation i can't even remember like but they didn't do enough work to make the actual investigation the actual story around the investigation interesting you want to spend time in the world exactly. with these remarkable characters and there, you know there's this small thing in top of the Lake china girl where this other uh robin griffin uh, elizabeth moss's character is partnered Sorry, with Liz- lizzie moss, lizzie moss. Yeah, right. i just wanted i didn't want to confuse you since Thanks. i don't know if you can call her that um with with uh <laughs> gwendol and christie yeah. from game of thrones by the way lizzie calls her gwen I don't. Well, I haven't you earned haven't, that right. You haven't had that formal introduction. No. Yeah. Or informal introduction. Yeah. Uh, they're partnered, and they're these uh, male detectives who are sort of shadowing them or supervising them. And this guy just keeps hitting on her. Yeah. And it's hilarious. <laughs> and it's so surprising the way it keeps happening. And it doesn't feel particularly, like, weighted or evil. Yeah, going it's to just, character is a, is a scream. And, and it's funny on the margins in these ways that life is funny in the margins and surprising. And for me, that's worth all of it. Like, yeah. there's this... There's this uh, joy and anguish and the margins um, of other shows that is front and center. It is an emotionally driven show, uh, not a cerebrally or intellectually driven show. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. And I, but I would just say about both of these shows is that they are once like very uh, entertaining and enjoyable to, or, you know, mm-hmm. engaging to watch, but are really do not insult the intelligence of the audience. They really assume that you can hang, that you can follow the oh, characters, that, here. that you here can you follow are. the story. And that's the best kind of TV, man. That's why, that's why we're in this game. That's what, Don't yeah. forget about us, Roy Price. <laughs> Look, just shouts to Bezos. We um, believe in you. Greenwald, uh, we'll be back on Thursday. Just for our listeners, you guys know, you may, may or may not know, we're doing a mailbag episode overdue. shortly. An yeah. overdue mailbag episode. So send any questions to at the watch pod on Twitter. Uh, just hit us up. Let us know what you you'd have like until to talk Thursday about. Thursday to get those in. Yeah. Um, so uh, until then. This was a great job. Have an by amazing you. week, brother. Great, great job, Baranski. Bye. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Rudy's Barbershop. Rudy's is bringing their 25 years of experience to a line of hair and body products that smell great 
and work effortlessly with GQ, Esquire, and Men's Health, and Chris Ryan raving about Rudy shampoo and conditioner and body wash, there will be no more deliberating in the aisles of the store. Two there- more things, Chris. Yes. You smell great. Thank you. And I think it's Rudy's to blame or to credit. <laughs> Rudy's is doing a great job. Second, Rudy's sent such nice things to us. They listen at Corporate HQ or whatever to this podcast and they like Jeezy. Andy never knew he needed a shower bomb, but now he's got one. Their pomades make styling look super easy no matter what your hair type, making their products your new go-tos. To learn Mm -hmm. more, visit rudysbarbershop.com. That's R-U-D-Y-S barbershop.com and enter offer code WATCH to receive 25% off your first order from the Rudy's website. Say shower bomb in a funny way. Shower bomb!